to episode six of series two of some Essex lad and a Paralympian, uh, Hannah Cockcroft, um, up in Chester at the minute, um, currently self-isolating after coming back from the Czech Republic. Um, how's it going, Hannah? What's life it's like not bad. up in the north like? It's uh, wet and windy today, so I'm actually not feeling too bad about the fact that I don't have to go outside. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how's the situation been with COVID like, recently? It's the obvious question, but how's it affected you and your life and kind of your career as well in the past few months and training and stuff like that? Well, it's been an interesting year, hasn't it? I think we could definitely say that. Um, yeah, I mean, this year is not what I planned, not what I expected at all. Uh, in some ways, it's been rubbish because obviously the Paralympics got postponed. So I was the one in the house that cried when that got announced. Um, and the whole season just disappeared in front of my eyes, really. So that wasn't great. But actually, it's not been that bad a year. If you put a positive spin on it, uh, I've had time to train in you know, instead of rushing up and down the country to this camp and that competition and this appearance and whatever else is going on, you know, I've firmly been stuck in my garage, uh, putting in the miles, putting in the, the sessions. So um, that all paid off earlier. We got um, three races in this season uh, back in kind of end of August, beginning of September. And I managed to break four world records through the three meets. So um didn't do too bad to say that I haven't hadn't really touched the track up until that point. But I was about to say it's quite you know to go from that to then breaking <laughs> you know world records consecutively in that quick succession. It's quite an achievement in that short period of time. Uh, you spent your career breaking world records, but even kind of this takes it to another level almost. A little bit wasn't really aiming for it or expecting it. You know what? I just took this season when we got told that we'd have a few races I was just like right I'm just gonna go and enjoy it because that's what this year's been about really finding that enjoyment again for the sport you know all the pressure went away there was no expectation to compete to do anything so you know I love what I do so I, I continued to train because there was nothing better to do anyway um, and and yeah it paid off and I think it, it literally just happened because wasn't expecting anything of myself I knew I hadn't touched a track I hadn't touched a gym I hadn't seen my coach um I think uh, relaxing works quite well for me maybe I need to do it a bit more often <laughs> do it more often have a, have a little nap before you got your races in uh, Tokyo next year um, I, I actually might <laughs> for sure um so how how did those events compare to what you'd usually get at uh Paralympics or World Championships or European Champs you know in terms of not just the size of them but also kind of everything behind the scenes with the COVID protocols in place as well? Oh, they were so different. So my, my first meet was uh, Loughborough Invitational. Um, we literally got two weeks notice for it. So when I turned up, uh, none of the other girls turned up. So that was good. Uh, I ended up in the men's race, which I haven't done since, well, probably since I started racing about 13 years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> so yeah, only girl on the start line. Um, you know, we had all these like, you had to scan yourself in and you know we literally were allowed in to warm up you raced and you left there was no hanging around no one watching we weren't allowed to take people with us so uh we were only allowed i was only allowed to take my coach you know no family no no friends nothing like that um and yeah we literally just got out and raced so that was different it kind of felt like a training session um it was a bit odd i, I mean i've never raced at loughborough before so that was a new one as well uh, the second meet was the British Champs, uh, which was another, you know, first for me. Uh, they've never integrated para events into the able-bodied competition before. Uh, Manchester, so. that one? It was in Manchester, so close to home. Um, so that was weird as well. I never compete close to home. So I just rolled out of bed, got in the car, went to race, came home. <laughs> Normally, you know, you've got to plan all your travel. That's and... easy, that. <laughs> it was. It was great. I loved it. I'd do that more often, but... As well, just being integrated with the Olympic guys was was something new and, and it was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Again, no crowd, which was a shame because it's a good stadium, you know. We could, we could have had a good crowd in there. Um, but they made it really special, you know. They, they were piping, like, crowd sound around the stadium. So it sounded louder than we would ever have a crowd anyway. So it was it was different. And, uh, and we got TV coverage as well, which we don't normally get. So all the positives and um yeah and all the girls turned up to that one so that was uh that was a good start <laughs> and as well it just showed you know in a year like this year where everything's been different 
if we can start integrating meats now, it just should it should never stop. Like that, that's it. You've done it once. Let's hope that uh, every meat kind of learns how easy it is to integrate. And it makes it easier to to do next year, and it kind of sets the precedent for the future as well. And I get what you mean by um, kind of especially with Manchester with the events because um, a little plug here, but one of my best friends from school is Daniel Rowden, who's um, the new 800 metre British champ. And he was saying to me that how how weird everything was in Manchester. And then he went out, I think it was out to Zagreb and he won out there as well. And they had a crowd out there in Zagreb. But even in different countries, it was kind of different to the events behind the scenes to what you'd expect to have an ordinary year anyway. Yeah, it's just... It's- I think more for us, it's been different not being able to take your full support team. I mean, normally I just take my coach anyway. I'm a bit of a loner, but my boyfriend takes like his mom, dad, sister, brother, grandma, granddad, auntie. You like you name it, they come in. The dogs come in. Everyone's <laughs> coming to watch. Um, so it's been different to not have those people that you're used to just seeing around. You know, we normally have the same athletes, the same coaches and parents and supporters come to every meet and and suddenly people were being told to choose you know my boyfriend has two coaches so choose one um how do you do that it's, it's insane you can't choose one coach you need them they're there for a reason yeah um so yeah it's uh it's you know i don't know it's, it's been strange but i'm just i was just thankful that we got the chance to get back out on the track and race because i really didn't think we'd get that chance this year well, you seem to be kind of spending all of your life kind of up north at the minute, Chester, Loughborough, Manchester, and then you grew up in Halifax, of course. And I want to kind of go back to, to there as well and what that was like growing up in, you know, in Halifax and Yorkshire up there. And obviously um, going back to, um, you know, even the birth that, that when you had, um, I think it's two cardiac arrests you had at birth, if, if I read that right. So how how's the journey been from kind of, you know, being where you are now to, Kind of even in a COVID year to kind of growing up and kind of the challenges that you had then? Um, so yeah, when I was born, I had two heart, um, cardiac arrests, um, which left me with multiple areas of brain damage, uh, deformed feet and deformed legs, so mobility problems. Um, you know what? I never, I don't really ever think about my childhood as being surrounded by barriers. I think. My parents were amazing at just getting me involved and I had two able-bodied, I have two able-bodied brothers. So anything they did, I did. Um, I was never really treated any different. I went to mainstream schools. Um, the only thing that I didn't get involved with was sport. You know, that was the one thing that I was always told, it's not for you. Um, but I still, I don't know, I just didn't see it as a barrier. I just kind of accepted that, oh, okay, like that's how it is. I'll just carry on anyway and do what I'm doing so mum and dad kind of pushed me to the art side of things I sang in a choir I played violin I was always busy always busy um and I guess I mean my, my introduction to sport was when I was 12 uh, the local wheelchair basketball team were doing the rounds of all the schools doing demos and they arrived at mine and kind of just opened my eyes to what was available to disabled people I guess it, they were the first disabled people I'd ever met and uh, was that I quite an easy decision to kind of just get involved in that immediately at that age? Yeah, I think. Well, I'm a person that if you tell me I can't do something, I will go out of my way to do it. So as soon as I saw this availability of sport for disabled people, I was like, right, that's it. Uh, it turned out that the coach literally lived around the corner from me, uh, like 100 metres down the road. Um, so... Yeah, that evening after the demo session, my dad just walked me around to his house and uh, I signed up to the, to the squad and that was it. Trained with them three times a week for the next six years. And yeah, that's where I started. <laughs> just a chance meeting. <laughs> it, was it not just um, uh, wheelchair basketball, but it was also swimming and was it also discus as well? I mean, three very different sports. If, if I mean, to be honest, I mean, wheelchair basketball, having seen personally what that is like live, and it's an amazing, an amazing um, sport. It is very physical. I mean, that's one way to describe it, I guess. But <laughs> it's, it's different to swimming in discus. Yeah, um, I literally tried anything. So for the club, uh, yeah, played basketball, tried a bit of wheelchair rugby, tried a bit of wheelchair tennis. And then people started to adapt their idea of what, you know, what disabled people could do. So at school, uh, I started doing the seat of discus. 
because uh, you know I couldn't join in with cross country and I was never upset that I couldn't join in with that but things like the discus there was no difference between everyone else standing up and me sitting down and throwing it so they got very creative with adapting the sessions that I could actually get involved with for the first time and yeah swimming again I just I just when I saw an opportunity started grabbing it you know I was at that age you know 12 years old I was sick of people telling me that I couldn't do things um, you know, so far I'd learned to walk and that's what people had said I'd never do. And I was pretty independent going to mainstream school. So, you know, why, why should I keep being told no? So am yeah, I right that, everything. <laughs> am I right that so you can walk short distances, but you can't walk long distances and that's why you need um, kind of the wheelchair for that. Am I right in saying that that's quite a fair reflection? Yeah, yeah. So I can walk short distances, um, mostly inside or in places that I know. Um, I use the wheelchair outside to get around a little bit quicker because I walk very, very slow and very unsteadily. Um, so use it outside so that I don't hurt myself, so that I can get places and so I can keep up with people. Um, so, yeah. Has that walking improved over time through your life as well? Or You know what? It improved to an age. And now I'm 28, I've got the bones of a 60-year-old and it's definitely getting worse again. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I growing up, I hated wheelchairs. Uh, I would do anything to avoid mine. So I walked everywhere at school. You know, it, it was painful, it hurt. I hung off people, got people to carry me, just anything to avoid my wheelchair. I hated it. And it was only when I got invo- involved in sport that I realised that, you know, wheelchairs didn't have to be these big funky heavy NHS things that you can't wheel around yourself you know they can be sporty they can be active they can be light they can be actually useful um but it took me finding sport to learn that so yeah I guess my my walking was good because it's all I did and I forced myself to do it and then as soon as I allowed myself to to use the wheelchair a bit more I guess guess my legs are enjoying the break (laughs) that's really interesting because like when we had Salih Pearson on um a few weeks ago that um he mentioned that he kind of almost had a phobia to disability that if he saw a wheelchair across the street he would I mean he said he he would run into Anne Summers I'm not sure whether that, that's the same for you in that <laughs> um but that he kind of mentioned that when he does speeches around the world and he sees people kind of ignorant to disability that he was like well I get you because I was in that place is that kind of similar to kind of what you experienced with wheelchairs or yeah, definitely. I think I I didn't associate myself with disability. You know, I wasn't surrounded by it. I was the only disabled person I knew. So in my head, I wasn't disabled. I was just different. Um, and I didn't want to be any more different than I could make myself. So, you know, all my friends are out there walking around. Why would why would I sit down? Why would I get in that wheelchair? Um, for me, the wheelchair was, was the symbol of disability. It was a symbol of inability and, and not being able to do for yourself and I didn't like that um, and, it, and it took you know finding finding sport finding a more able sense of disability to, to change my mind and show me that you know disability is not something to be ashamed of it's not something to hide from but when you're not really exposed to it at all when you're growing up you know there was there was no one around me like me there was no one on telly like me newspapers there was just nothing um I just figured, oh, there's, there's just me and I'm just different. So I've just got to work hard and make myself as normal as possible. And yeah, I, I, I hope now that, that young, young people don't feel like that. I hope that, you know, they have a lot more um, accessibility to see people like themselves. But you never know, there probably are still people like me out there. <laughs> Is it fair to say it's not just the sport, it's the people in the sport as well? Because you met Dr. Ian Thompson, you know, the husband of Tanny Gray Thompson. And was that kind of when you kind of had the opportunity to kind of go into kind of elite racing that that you thought, well, we could go somewhere with this. And then was it ever in your mind that you'd end up at a Paralympics kind of from that or? No, Paralympics were never an aim ever until I got there. <laughs> um, you know, what? when I went to the talent day to try wheelchair racing, which is which is where I met Ian, um, I just was still in the mind frame of uh, I want to try everything and wheelchair racing even though I was already playing basketball and basketball gave me that speed and it gave me that adrenaline it gave me that teamwork and that you know a sense that I'd never really had before um, when I got in the race chair I just felt totally different you know 
I was 15 when I first started, when I first got in the chair, in the race chair. And up until that point, you know, I still tried to walk as many places as I could. I still always had an adult with me. I was always holding someone's hand to help hold me up. Um, I was very dependent on other people. And I remember when I first sat in the race chair, it was just this feeling of freedom that I'd never had before. You know, when I got on the track, no one told me to slow down because the whole point was to go fast. No one told me to stop, you know, because there was no wall at the end of the court. I didn't have to share what I was doing. I didn't have to pass a ball. It was it was all down to me. And I'd, I'd never had that. I'd always had to depend on other people. So I think that's what really drew me in. And I just, I just did racing for fun. That was all it was ever meant to be. And really, that's all it still is. I just love what I do. Um, but no, the Paralympics was never, ever an aim in my life. as fun is that kind of just taking the pressure kind of across yourself thinking I could have another career and I know you, you you've always you know I mean you did journalism at university anyway so you can that, that is an option I guess for you can even after your career as well but was that always just kind of the perception that if this doesn't work out I've always got something else and I know I'm going to be good at that as well yeah I think all my coaches really importantly have, have always encouraged me that you know education is important and being an athlete doesn't last forever. Um, I probably only started thinking properly about being an athlete when I was like 17, 18 years old. So up until that point, did my A-levels, did my went to college, went to university. Um, just because, I don't know, I just didn't see sport as a job. But, you know, I just push a chair in a circle. How much money can I make doing that? And the answer is not a lot, but it's quite time-consuming when you want to do it properly. Um, but, yeah, I'm... I'm always very aware that this this career could it could end tomorrow. So I'm always pushing myself to do new things. And um, you know, like a couple of years ago, I, I did a presenting stint on Punch File. Um, so I've done my training in that. Like you said, I did my journalism degree. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I get bored easy. I always want to do something different. So <laughs> well, you've had strictly the Great British Bake Off as well, which we'll talk about. Um... <laughs> we'll talk about later on but talking of jobs um there's a story that your um your father being or your dad being a, a welder that you had your first sprinting chair that you, it was like the inco- incorrect dimensions and that your dad had to fix that is that a true story or yeah yeah so obviously a race chair costs quite a bit of money so my first race chair cost about five and a half thousand pounds um they're not cheap and they're not, not you know pennies that you can pull out your pocket. Grandma, that's a lot <laughs> yeah it's quite a lot of money so it took me quite a few years to save up for my first chair and my whole community chipped in you know my local dance school um I danced with uh sold all their programs at their dance shows to raise one to me my dad ran the Leeds 10k with my brother's rugby team to raise money like just everyone everyone got involved and it was so special um but the problem with the race chairs is uh they're pretty much solely made in America so the chairs I get are made in America. So remember Ian uh, measured me up for one in an Ikea car park with an Ikea tape measure. And yeah, unsurprisingly, it came and didn't really fit. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, so yeah, my dad, uh, I mean, there was two options, send it back and pay to send it back and then pay to get it sent back from America and da da da. And it was just extra money that we didn't really have to throw at the chair or trust my dad to to cut it up and well there's yeah. always always trust within a family it depends how much trust <laughs> that is I guess so it was a lot of trust and he did me you know he did me proud he did well uh that chair I broke my first world record in and I got my first world champion titles in so I really he must have wow. done a good job <laughs> it didn't look great but he did a good job <laughs> and that would have been in Christchurch am I right in 20 yes in 2011 so yeah. Yeah, and that that period for you, kind of before London 2012, did you ever ever have an idea that you would kind of, I guess after the World Championships, there was kind of the definite idea that you probably would be there. But even before that, you know, like in 2009, you had the, the mini marathon. That was kind of your first elite event and you kind of won the, the girls title in that. And then in 2010, the best British Paralympic performance, um, you got the award for that as well. And it's kind of the ladder going up from that slowly and steadily, you kind of building yourself up to... First, the world's in Christchurch, and then obviously in in London. 
yeah, it was all happening. Um, but I don't know. I just took it in my stride and, and you know, everything that came, I just said yes to and just did it. But it was never never with the ultimate aim to, to go to London. Um, I'd, I'd kind of been told to not even consider that. It was too soon and you're not going to get there. So that was written off straight away pretty much. Um, I was taken to Christchurch because, so every athletics team we take, we have to take a set number of men and a set number of women. Um, and they didn't have enough women, so they asked if I wanted to go along. And obviously at 18 years old, you get asked if you want to go to New Zealand with some of your best friends you, to do the sport that you love. You just say, yeah. Um, but yeah, came home with two gold medals, which I don't I don't really think anyone expected. <laughs> um and that's that's probably when the hard work started, I think. <laughs> it's quite a young age. I mean, Ellie, I know swimming is slightly different to athletics, but um, like Ellie Simmons that she mentioned when she was, you know, in Beijing, obviously 13, 14, when she won the gold medal, was that um, she she said that, you know, it, to, an, it, to an extent, it wasn't even that much of a surprise to her, even though the whole, you know, the headlines were 13 year old wins a, a gold medal at the Paralympics, because people in swimming, especially kind of, you know, power athletes to, to an extent kind of peak very very early is it the same with athletics um or is there a peak age around 26 7 to what you'd expect in I don't know, tennis or cricket or football uh, a lot of a lot of wheelchair racers always say oh you know you peak at about 30 years old um so if i've still not peaked then brilliant that's great <laughs> um but I, I probably think i have um you know, I think the, the magic thing about parasport is anyone can become disabled at any time. And parasport is so, you, you're either lucky enough to get into it when you're young or you're like me and you struggle and you don't find it until you're a little bit older because 15 is quite old to, to get into wheelchair racing. Um, I'm coaching a girl now who's 14 years old and I put her in a first race chair when she was seven. So that's kind wow. of the age you're, you're looking at. You know, Dave Weir was about six or seven when he first got in a race chair. Um, so I was I was pretty old, but that's that's the amazing thing about para sport. It doesn't matter. Age doesn't really mean anything because tomorrow anyone who's listening to this could become disabled and decide that they want to try para sport. And you could be 10, you could be 40, and you could still become Paralympic champion. So I think generally... It's more about the time you give yourself to learn the different, you know, techniques, tactics, um, actually just really learn your sport because it's not as simple as, you know, learning to run, which you learn from a, an early age. It's literally just something so different. Every parasport is so, so different to anything you could imagine because um, we're trying to make our bodies do things that we probably shouldn't do. <laughs> interpret that in any way you want by the way um, <laughs> so, um talking about london then how was it you know first paralympics home games um like it must have been surreal and it's the question i've always it must, it's the comment i've always said to like most of the paralympians who have always been on the podcast you know quite a few of them who have had their first paralympics in london you couldn't have picked a better location to an extent could you no, I couldn't have picked better games. A, a part of me wishes that I'd found the sport earlier and I'd had a games before London so I could have really appreciated what London was because it was outstanding. It was surreal and it, I don't think we'll ever get a games like it again. Um, but I just at the time just thought that's what Paralympics was, you know, this amazing show where everyone comes to watch and everyone gets involved and gets behind what you're doing. I, I thought that was Paralympics. Um Apparently not, <laughs> but oh, it was, it just completely changed the game, you know, get in there and obviously it's magical. You get in there and it's like living in this like holiday town. Everything's free. You've got food on tap 24 hours a day. You know, you've got little fobs where you can go to like drinks machines and stuff and just get a free drink. There's, you'd have to pay to get on the bus. You could go and watch some sport for free and, it's great. I'd live there. Honestly, I think people would pay to live there. It's so good. Um, <laughs> but then obviously we had the, you know, the serious side of actually competing. But you know what? I never, at no point during London did I feel nervous or scared about what was going to happen. You know, I remember the first time that I heard the, the cheer, the, the 80,000 strong cheer. Um, had a few butterflies at that point. I was on the warm-up track that was 
It was about 800 metres away from the stadium. And I could hear this like buzzing sound. I said to my coach, what, what is that noise? Because it's really annoying me. And he said, well, you better get used to it. You're about to go racing in front of it. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, that's a stadium, Hannah. And up until that point, you've got to bear in mind, my biggest crowd had been 200 people at the World Championships. So it was it was a pretty big step going from 200 people to 80,000. But once I just accepted that that's what it was, I was like, cool, all right, let's go. <laughs> because it, it, it went quite well. I mean, you got the first, am I right? So you got the first gold medal from uh, a Paralympic athlete from GB on the track or was it just GB overall because then you got the first track gold medal for GB since 2004 as well so it was quite an instant impact kind of yeah it went pretty well didn't it (laughs) (laughs) I mean that's just lucky that's just lucky that my event was one of the first and that I did quite well um you know that could have been anyone's titles really because I was just the first out on the track but yeah I mean going out I kind of wish I remember more of it. I don't feel like I soaked it up enough because I just, in my head, thought, I'll just relive this again and again because I'm going to go to more Paralympic Games. But having obviously been to Rio, it it wasn't even similar to London. So, Mm. you know, I definitely just don't remember enough of it. But I remember being in the call room, which was underneath the stands in the stadium. And... I was just buzzing. I was just laughing and having a joke and having a chat to all the officials and just being myself, really. And all the other girls were, like, ghostly white. They were so pale and they were so really? nervous. And I can't remember, someone someone from GB competed. Ah, oh, I was in the second heat um, and my teammate Mel Nichols was in the first heat of my race. Remember, hearing them shout, you know, Melissa Nichols, and the floor like literally shook. It physically shook, and I was just like, "Oh my word, that is a big noise! I can't wait to be in front of it." <laughs> and then, yeah, then it was my turn, and um, so I was really lucky in the games that uh, my games coach was an athlete called Chantel Pesciclair. Um, My coach had brought Chantel in um, just to lead me through the games, really, and give me some advice. She's the most successful female Paralympian ever. She won 16 Paralympic gold medals in her career. So wow. I really have got any better advice for my first that's Paralympics. too bad, that year, just a few <laughs> 16 medals. Is that, that's it. Like. Um, and, you know, her advice had been, you know, when you go out, people are going to tell you to block out the noise. Don't just, just listen to it. Appreciate that it's there. Appreciate it's for you. And I remember that they had to do a job. And she said, when you're on the start line, don't smile. You know, everyone else will smile and wave. Don't do it because you don't want to be friends with your opponent. You, you know, you're there to win. I was like, okay, that'll be easy. Got out there and as soon as they said my name, like you can see it on the video. I was like, I'm trying to be all stern, but <laughs> I'm just grinning my head off because it's so hard not to grin when there's that many people cheering for you. It's so funny. And I was just like, oh, I tried. <laughs> it's too hard. Um, but they're not, honestly, they're noise. I don't even think I remember it as loud as it was. It kind of was muted because it was so loud. Um, but it was just amazing. I would do anything to do that day again and again and again because it was just the best, best time. <laughs> because we had Sophie Camlish on um, this series as well and she mentioned because she's you know um, in another category but you know similar kind of distance and she mentioned that especially with the noise um, that you get uh, she had it at London 2017 in the, in the World Champs there um, and she kind of mentioned that you know it's when the gun goes off is that suddenly there's a burst of energy from the crowd but obviously it's it's very loud then it's silent because you have the weight the starting gun and then it goes again how how is that feeling because it's different you know what i i only remember obviously it was really loud and then like you say that we get called to the start line and it, it goes silent and in my head i can only remember it staying silent for the rest of the race i didn't you know, I was so focused on my lane and what I was doing and, and just the motions that I knew I had to go through to, well, first to win the heat and then to win the final. I didn't really pay attention to anything else except what I was doing. And the, the burst of noise came when I crossed the line for me. You know, that's when I heard it because I think it, it picked up like tenfold. Um, I got told after the 200 metre final, which was on 
Thriller Thursday. So when I won my second gold, Johnny Peacock won his first gold and Dave Weir won his third gold, I think. Um, a really successful night for us. But that night, the decibels of noise when I won my second gold were louder than when Mo Farah won his gold at the Olympics. So Really? Yeah. Someone measured it. I don't know why. And then they drew a picture of it. It's really nice. <laughs> but, That's the artistic background that you had as a kid kind of coming through there. It's very, it's a very cool picture, to be fair, because they've drawn the decibels as flames. Um, and honestly, like, I can believe it. It was loud. It was so loud. And, and it just hits you when you cross that line. Because everyone wants to celebrate with you. You know, if, if Sophie Camlish experienced it in London uh, in 2017, I mean, that was big, but... Yeah, times it by another a lot of people. races themselves because you you know you've always you, you competed I mean obviously I think you've taken the 200 out if I'm right and saying kind of recently yeah. but 100 200 400 and 800 you put that into the Olympics and it's going to be impossible for an athlete to compete in all four of them usually even three of them um how does that differ then I guess with David Weir is an example of course you know somebody who does the short distances to the marathon so how how is it different being in a wheelchair compared to being you know, on the track um, generally? Um, yeah, a lot of people ask me this question and I don't scientifically know the answer. I think it's because obviously the hardest part of our race is, is getting the chair moving, it's getting the momentum um, in the wheels. So the chair, once we're up and rolling, is, is doing a little bit of work for us. You know, after, the, after a full 100 metres, the chair's kind of taking a bit of the strain, which keeps us going. Um, but the way I look at it is, in a wheelchair race, you always need a good, strong 100 metres. Whether you're doing the 100 or a marathon, you always need a sprint because there's always going to be a sprint at the beginning, at the end, and somewhere in the middle. Um, so I think, I think you know, our training is our training is very, very different. Um, our training is probably more like cycling than it is running. Um, and when we're training even if you're training for the 100, you still train for endurance. So we can do like a 100-meter sprint and then roll around and a 100-meter sprint and roll around. You don't stop moving for a whole training session. You know, whereas a sprinter would do like a 100-meter sprint and then sit down for an hour, we'll just keep rolling, keep pushing, keep oh, moving. Oh, wow. I, I didn't, um, didn't know that whatsoever. Yeah, so you're, you're building the endurance from day one. So I think a lot of athletes kind of start with the sprints and then move move up more into the distances, uh, which is obviously what I've done, not by choice. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think as long as you've got that sprint in you, then all you have to do is keep the keep the wheels turning, really, and that's what you do in a whole session anyway. So, you know, in, a, in an average training session, I cover about 10 miles, so um, 100 metres is nothing. <laughs> is, there a, is there a kind of a distance which you kind of prefer overall, or has that kind of changed since you've kind of gone through, you know, the World Champs and the Paralympics? It's definitely changed. Um, my favourite distance at the moment is a 400, typically, because it's the one distance I don't have. Um, but, yeah, that's my favourite race. Nice. Is there, just putting you on the spot quickly, is there um, a race which you could, a specific race out of all the out of all the gold medals you've got in, in all, you know, what Paralympics, Worlds and Euros, is there a specific race that you would go back to and say, oh, I want to do that again? Is London that one or...? I think if it was for experience wise, then yeah, London every single day I would do again just for the atmosphere and everything like that. I think if it was to, to do a race again to improve it, <laughs> it'd be my 100 metres at the Europeans in 2018 because I didn't do very well. <laughs> well we won't talk about that one um, uh, one um but i wanted to talk about after london 2012 as well kind of the reaction you know the media coverage the last leg channel four's kind of coverage with that but then you know you're on stamps you got an mbe you had a you got a gold post box as well was almost the reaction to london bigger than what kind of the games itself almost oh yeah the reaction to london lasted four years 
I literally could have done something different, you know, a different event, a different appearance every day for those four years between the two games. It was immense. Um, you know, like like you say, I just did all these crazy things. And I think for a while I just lost my way. You know, I, I just wanted to do everything um, except train. <laughs> um, so, you know, I did two weeks of literally running myself ragged, just doing anything. And then my coach was like, right, this is ridiculous. You're going back to training because you're forgetting what you do as an actual job. Um, oh, some of the opportunities were just amazing. I mean, I got to meet my fly. That was the big one for me. <laughs> so how did that happen? Um, let me see. Well, I'm a massive Metafly fan anyway. Um, and one of my sponsors at the time were sponsoring, I don't know, they were doing a big music show in London. So, you know, they sent me tickets and they were like, oh, you know, come come see us. We want to get you on stage with your gold medals. And and yeah, they just had Metafly there waiting for me. So I've met them loads of times since then, but still the excited. Time, the best time, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's absolutely the best time. Everyone always goes, oh, who's the best person you've met? And I always say McFly, and my mum says I should probably say the Queen, but you know, personal preference, know, isn't it? I reckon you could you could beat McFly with the Queen. What was their reaction? Did they know who you were? Um, um the same reaction as everyone gets, really. Could I see your medals? <laughs> everyone just wants to see the medals, and then they tell you how heavy they are. Um, now, when I see them, because you know I've met, I've obviously not met them this year, but. I've met, I see them at events around and they actually know my face now, which makes me feel, you know, quite famous. <laughs> That's so bad. Do you remember what you what you said to them? It's like, oh, I'm a massive fan that, you know, like, I love your music or... I don't think I really spoke. I think I was just like, <laughs> just all giggly, you know, like, just an idiot. <laughs> How did that compare to the to the MBE then? And, and was it Buckingham Palace you went to then? Yeah, so I got my MBE at Buckingham Palace from Prince Charles. Um, very different. Um, obviously, it's a massive, massive honour to have an MBE. But and, and when you get this kind of nerve wracking, you know, you're going in and you don't want to trip over your own feet and mess it up. And I don't know. Um, so, it, yeah, it's a bit more pressurised, that one. But, yeah, it was an odd day. You know, you stand, you, you go in and you stand in a line and... Um, you just wait for your name to be called, basically. But I was stood next to uh, Bombardier Ben Parkinson. Um, ben was blown up in Iraq, so it lost both his legs and had pretty severe brain damage. Um, and he was getting an MBE as well. And I just remember, like, sitting there and thinking, either I'm, either I don't belong here or he deserves, like, a knighthood or something far, far more than an MBE because... I went out and had a great time and had some fun and he literally put his life on the line and we're getting the same medal. And it was a bit of a sobering moment. You know, it's supposed to be this massive achievement, but it kind of made me sit there and think, oh, should I, do I deserve this? Should I be here? You know, ultimately I've done, I've got what I went for. I got the gold medal, you know, and, and that's what an athlete strives for, not for all these other accolades. So yeah, it was, it was a very sobering day and, I mean, again, I don't, I don't, um, I don't really think I celebrated it that well because I was speaking to people after it and they're like, "Oh, we've booked dinner at the Ritz," and I was like, "Oh, we haven't booked anywhere. I didn't think of doing that." So uh, we went to the Hard Rock Cafe and uh, they made me a badge, an MBE badge. So there you go. <laughs> well, that's arguably better than the MBE, and I guess kind of that would have been at quite a young age anyway. I'm just kind of comparing it to what Marcus Rashford kind of has been through recently as well. That. It's kind of similar, although you know, with the with the child feed obviously stuff as well. Kind of he's he's got that on the side, but talking about issues away from the sports as well. And I guess you must kind of be inspired by kind of what Marcus Rashford is doing. Oh, amazing. You know, I was I was 20 when I got my MBE and I don't I didn't really fight for anything, you know. I was just awestruck by all these things that I was suddenly being offered and doing. But the fact that, you know, I love that he hasn't forgotten where he's come from. That he's still fighting for the for the people around him, for the people that he cares about, and he's using his voice in a really positive way. And you know, I really support that because I'm 28 now, and I'm only just coming around to thinking the way that he's thinking at such a young age. So it's a massive, massive inspiration. And you know, it's people like that. It's people like that that have done, a, you know, gone above and beyond their sport that deserve those kind of accolades. You know, that 
that have done something more than just represented their country because our award is representing our country. You know, we, we get to go out and do what we love. Um, but but he's going even further and, and making sure that people eat. So uh, just hats off to him. He's amazing. And talking of accolades, you were the first ever Paralympian to be in BBC Sports Personality of the Year outside of kind of the cycle of Paralympics. Um, how was that? Because that must have been pretty sweet. You finished seventh on the list. And the names on that list, you know, are you thinking, wow, this is, you know, I'm, I'm alongside, you know, so-and-so on here? It was mad. That was the busiest and hardest time of my life, honestly. Um, I was on the shortlist for Sports Personality and I was also filming Strictly Come Dancing at the same time. So we were dancing like 8am till 8pm and then I was going training uh, and in any breaks I had, I was doing dress fittings, interviews, like filming and photo shoots, like you name it. It was like my all-star two weeks of fame. <laughs> um, but yeah, just being on that list, you know, to, to, to make history and be the first name on that list outside of a parampit year, is, it was amazing. It was a massive honour, but it was really scary. You basically sat on that stage trying to sell yourself. And I didn't know how to do that. You know, I was, I'd just gone 21. And um, yeah, it was, I kind of enjoy spotty when I'm just a guest. <laughs> I didn't feel like I could relax. And, you know, I think athletes kind of use that night as their Christmas party. Um, so I'm going to miss it this year. But um, yeah, I didn't really feel like I could just let my hair down and, and enjoy it. I felt like I had to, you know, give the right answers all the time and, and say the right thing. Whereas, I don't know, now I'd, I'd probably just be myself and hope that my achievements speak for themselves. But I don't I don't know if we'll ever see a Paralympian win that, to be fair. Was I guess, I know Ellie Simmons got Young Sports Personality of the Year in 2008, I think it was, when she when she did what she did in Beijing. But I guess kind of representing kind of Paris sports, you know, what would it take that you know somebody to from the Paralympic world to win BBC Sports Personality of the Year is it kind of something which you'd like to see quite quickly or is it something you kind of expect to see quite quickly? I'd love to see it happen um I don't know how soon it would happen I think for it to happen we need more coverage by sport more coverage on the telly more coverage in national media uh, we need bigger crowds because I think Thing is people don't know our names you know I'm probably one of the most well-known Paralympic names and that's not like a big-headed claim it's just a fact you know if you ask people to name a Paralympian it's Dave Weir, Tanny Ray Thompson, Ellie Simmons, Johnny Peacock, maybe I push me so the fact that the famous names are still can be counted on five, on, on five fingers on one hand you know what I mean it's we're not there yet and we need that equity and coverage of our events to, to even get the votes because let's be honest like it's it's hard to it's it's hard to beat a sports yeah. person that has coverage of every single game they play every race they race you know we're going out there and, and I think every Paralympic sport probably gets their major championships covered and that's about it so I think we've got a long way to go but I'd love to see it happen let's see what let's see what happens <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it does hopefully it does. i think it would be amazing for the for, for the country let alone for the sports overall if it does um just talking about um on the track stuff then you know you have then doha you have rio and then london three very different kind of types of events but you won three golds in kind of all of them as well how did they compare in terms of world champs and then paralympics and then obviously world champs again doha and rio a lot quieter than London, I can imagine as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, we had we had Doha in 2015. I um, had a bit of a hiccup in 2015. Lost my first race in seven years. Uh, not very good memories of that year at all, really. Um, and I felt a lot of pressure to go in and, and win in Doha. You know, we'd we'd had our events changed, so. Um, I now had the 100, 400, 800 to race instead of the 100, 200. Um, Why was the change? And, was it just um, a, a ruling? Or? Yeah, so the International Paralympic Committee, I guess uh, in athletics, there are 58 classes across track and field. Uh, so when you consider that, uh, that's a lot of medals to hand out. It's a lot of events. If everyone, if every track event had the 1, 2, 4, 8, 15, 5K, 
every World Championships, Paralympic Games, European Championships would last about six years. <laughs> so um, they pick and choose and they, they change what events are on offer for what classifications. Um, so classifications, obviously, um, a number that you get given that represents your disability so that you are competing against people who are similar to you. Um, so I'm a T34 uh, and yeah, T34s have the one and two in London and then uh, 2014, it got changed to the one and eight. And then 2015, uh, it was announced just before the World Champs that we would also get given a 400. Um, so yeah, my first time to go for three medals and I felt quite a lot of pressure doing that. You know, we didn't have that much practice at the four. I was still very new to the eight. It still felt a very long way. <laughs> It still does. Um, and a lot of new faces. Yeah. A lot of new faces were coming through as well. You know, obviously, uh, Carrie Denigan was was now on the team. I think that was her first major championships. I mean, she's the one who um, beat you in... Yeah, so she was the one who'd beaten me. Yeah. She's the one who'd beaten me just before, just before I went to the World Championships. Uh, so not great. <laughs> but there was also, like, Alexa Halko from the USA, who wasn't around for London. Um, yeah, there was a, a few new names, so it was uh, a difficult chance to get through. But I got through it, triple world champion, um, and then and then Rio the next year had to kind of do the same feat. And it was it was not only different from London in the fact that you know there was less crowd, less noise, but there was a lot more expectation. You know, going into London, no one knew my name, no one really cared, <laughs> and now suddenly. You know, everyone knew what I did, who I was, and I felt like I had to win. So, yeah, Rio was a, a lot harder. quite daunting harder. to have that expectation, kind of you have kind of the world on your shoulders to kind of pardon the phrase in that, in that way? Uh, it used to be. I think I've just gotten over it now and just realised that as long as I train as hard as I can, then that's the best I can do. But, yeah, for a long time, I really felt it. And I, I, mean, I wouldn't say I struggled on it. I kind of thrived under the pressure of it a lot that people expected me to win but it is quite scary sometimes when you don't know if you can do that you don't know if that's that's on offer so yeah going into my second Paralympic Games it, it really did feel like the weight of the world was on my shoulders because I think you you pick it up so much in your own head that you just think oh I've got to win this or else it's the end of the world but thankfully it went all right. like did you go out to you know Copacabana much what was the atmosphere like kind of outside of the games so I didn't actually leave the village at all during the games um I was lucky enough one of my sponsors flew me out there in March of 2016 uh basically to be a tourist so I, I did Christ the Redeemer I stayed on Copacabana Beach nice, nice. Um, did Sugarloaf Mountain it's, it's an amazing country it's so beautiful and the people are so lovely like I'd go back. I'd definitely go back. I really liked it there. But it was, it felt a lot different going back for the games. Um, whilst I was there on the sponsor trip, there was a massive protest outside my hotel against the Brazilian president, uh, which is a bit strange. Um, and then obviously going back for the games, where the village was built, it was, it was where a favela was. So they saw all this money being poured into this temporary housing for athletes and, and nothing for them. And wow. I kind of get it. I remember, I remember my first time being on the bus going to the track and um, like we, we pulled up at these traffic lights and all the locals just stuck their fingers up at the bus. They hated us. They absolutely hated us there. Um, I think they came around to us once the games had started, but yeah begin with they were not happy that we were Did there you understand so. where they're coming from you just said kind of like because I guess they're in a situation where the government have kind of prioritized a, a major sporting event over their welfare is that kind of a fair reflection of oh yeah massively massively like I totally understood it but it still made you feel quite uncomfortable to be involved in that it was it's you know it's quite a political statement really and I'm not a very political person but Felt uh, I felt pretty bad, <laughs> but uh, I think they came around to us eventually. They uh, they seemed to. I remember after one of my gold medals, I can't remember which one. Um, 
I went into the stand to see my mum and dad because, you know, they weren't round full. They weren't that busy. So I could just get up there and um, all these people like, I don't know, in Brazil, they like to kiss you for good luck. So all these people kept coming and kissing my cheeks and putting their children on my knee for a picture and things. Um, my dad loved it. He started, like, forming cues so that I knew who was next. It was it was <laughs> insane. And I was like, I'd actually come to see you, Dad, but he was having too much fun with his cues, so I just left him to it. So that's um, like sort of kind of forced marriages kind of thing, that. <laughs> honestly, it was like, I, oh, I had no idea what was going on. I just went along with it, but it was very nice. <laughs> So how, how how did Rio compare to London then? Um, you know, back you know back in London, you know, World Championships, the stadium's obviously been reconfigured by then. Um, but was that kind of similar to the Paralympics in London, twenty twelve? It was the Paralympics, but it was definitely on a smaller scale. Um, my whole World Championships in twenty seventeen were plagued by illness, so I don't. <sighs> I really, really wanted to enjoy that chance. You know, I was so excited to get back in that stadium, back in front of a home crowd. And I was so ill for the whole thing that I just didn't enjoy a minute of it. I was, I just felt dreadful. Um, so I didn't really feel like I could celebrate in, in the way that I wanted to. And it's a shame because it was, I had such a brilliant year. I was pushing really well. The world champs went well anyway. Like I became a triple world champion again. Um, what, is that your dog in the background? Sorry, I'm just. No, I have no idea whose dog that is. <laughs> Somewhere outside. Comes in and interrupts the interview. It's like, yeah, just come in. Feel free to. Wasn't sure if you could hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite a good connection there. So. Uh, that's oh that. well, that's good then. That's a positive. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you you're really ill then in 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 London overall. Yeah. So the night before my hundred meter final, um, I got really bad food poisoning from the hotel food, which wasn't ideal. Um, so spent the rest of the night and the whole of the next day throwing my guts up. Um, went out that night, raced 100 metres, won, broke the world record. Probably because I'd thrown up that much, I was the lightest I'd ever been, I think. Very loud. <laughs> well, <laughs> you can see what... <laughs> You can see what you edit out later on, but um, but I, I reckon we can keep the dog in there. To be honest, it'd be quite quite funny listening to it. But um, yeah, I mean that's talk about you know F one drivers always talk about you know when they're in cars, you know they're going to lose as much weight. The same applies in a, in a in a bike by the sorry, in, in a in a chair by the looks of it. Apparently, so I mean I don't aim to lose weight all the time. I, I'm not that bothered. Um, I think I was I was I was really in shape, and I knew I was. Um, and I think the weight loss just aided me a little bit more. <laughs> and then after the 100, I caught the worst cold. Um, it didn't really hit me fully for the eight, which was quite good. I could breathe for the 800. So I was a bit grumpy, but I got on with it. Um, and then the 400, or oh, the 400, the last, the last night of the championships, I was seriously on the start line about to pull out. Uh, I was that ill really? and literally like saw my mom on my warm-up lap, saw her in the crowd and I went up and I was like, I can't do this. I need to pull out. I'm just, I, I can't, honestly, mom, I can't breathe. I'm going to be sick. I'm, I'm not well. She was like, well, all your family have come to watch. So you better finish the race and then you can go and be sick. <laughs> so that was it. I got told. <laughs> I your mum's like a um, proper, like, you know, you're going to do this. So you're going to do it well kind of thing. Oh, it was the worst feeling. And I just, just remember sitting on the start line and the gun went and I just went into autopilot. And it, it, you know that seriously tacky saying, but, you know, train hard, win easy. And it really came into play that day. You know, I, I knew I'd trained hard that year. I'd had a brilliant, brilliant year, brilliant season. And, um, yeah, I just went into autopilot. I just pushed and pushed and pushed. And at the whole way around I thought that the girls were right on the back wheel and I was thinking I'm gonna get beat I'm gonna get beat so um yeah I just pushed and I, and I won it and I was I was only like a point of a second outside of my world record if I'd been well I probably would have pushed a new world record but I came across the line and um one of my best friends Jodie Hannigan was there as a photographer and I saw her and she just put a camera down she gave me a massive hug she was just like 
I think you need to go home, Hannah. And I was like, I think I do. <laughs> It's horrible. This is what you're saying about taking a nap before the race, let alone after it. Um, Honestly, everyone went out to celebrate after and I, w- I just went to bed. <laughs> do not blame you one bit. Um, but talking oh. about people going to bed, actually, talk about uh, this is a little link to another section of the podcast. But um, <laughs> um, talk about country file, you know, people are pretty about to go to bed when they watch it, to be honest. But um yeah I want to talk about your TV career because it's it's really is it genuinely do you really want a TV kind of career after your Paralympics career and if so kind of what kind of stuff would that be in would it be sport or would it be presenting you know what Dean Dublin some like homes under the hammer would it would you see yourself like presenting country file long term in the future or yeah I'd definitely do it I'd love to do that um yeah I want to work in the media I want to be a presenter when I've finished here uh, doing what I'm doing. Um, Country File came up. I did a, a TV presenting course at the beginning of 2017. Um, British Athletics encourage us to do some kind of educational thing every year just to keep our skills fresh and, and you know, to have something to offer when we finish competing. Um, so I did the, the TV presenting course and somehow my uh, showreel found its way to the BBC and, and yeah, I got offered this gig to present country file which was like a dream come true so I accepted it and you know tv things take ages and ages so yeah um I loved it it was so much fun and it was so easy <laughs> it's really easy it was really easy they just write you a script and your script is about three lines long and you just read your three lines and then you sit in a van eating snacks while they go and film cows and stuff it's great Oh, that's not, you know. Oh, that's a bit of a bit of a backhanded compliment to uh, all the country fell presenters, you know. Well, maybe it was. Di- I think it was slightly different for me because obviously in a chair it was not so easy to go wandering around the cows or you know beating for grouse and things like that. So they did they did make they did dumb it down a bit for me uh, to make it a bit more accessible. But oh, yeah. long days, very long days. I'll give it that. You know, uh, I did one. I did a day with a dairy farmer. Um, we started at half past four in the morning. I think I got home at about 11 o'clock at night. So, oh, wow. Yeah, it was very long days, but I, I just loved it. I loved it. It was something so, so different to anything I've ever done. And it was something that you wouldn't expect to see a disabled, people do, a disabled person do. So I think that was really important to me. Um, and, you know, obviously being brought up in Yorkshire and, and out in the countryside it just felt like home it just felt comfortable there so uh, you're gonna try you're gonna try the uh, the SES thing next to that Middleton and uh I don't know if I'd be very good at that I don't, I don't know, know. If, maybe the abseiling bit would be I'd be great at that I'd do that would be fun that'd be great zip wires yeah that's a bit me but I'm a celebrity get me out of here maybe no not ch- no way even no. if it paid you like half a million pounds, no, you're not do it. I don't like being dirty. I don't like not being in bed. <laughs> I don't like eating weird things. It's just not a bit of me. Before finishing off, then I want to talk about. <laughs> um, I want to talk about um, like one more TV appearance you had, and that was the Great British Bake Off as well. Um, how was that? Because my I, I, when I told my mum that I was going to be talking to you, she was like, "Oh, Hannah's been on the Great British Bake Off." Like, she's had a career. She's had like an athletics career as well. It's not just like cakes. You know what people know me from either Country File or Bake Off. No one knows me as an athlete. It's very weird. <laughs> um, Bake Off was scary. Oh, I was more nervous on Bake Off than I was at any of my Paralympic finals. Hands down, definitely. Really? Wow. Especially when Paul Hollywood comes and asks you what you're doing and you're thinking, I've got no idea what I'm doing. I'm not going to tell you that because I want a baking show. I think I I do this thing. I don't watch a lot of telly. So I get invited onto TV shows and I go, yeah, all right. How hard can it be? Having never watched them, but then I get there and panic because I have no idea what's about to happen because I've never watched them. So I did um, Mastermind. I'd never watched it. So I figured that it was just your specialist subject and that was it. There's a general knowledge round in Mastermind. You oh, no, you know? didn't actually realise there's a general... Oh, that's a rookie I did not error. know that. So that panicked me. 
I lost it at that point. That, that panicked me. Um, Bake Off never watched it. What's the specialist subjects in, by the way? I'm kind of curious about that. <laughs> McFly. Of obviously. Course, of course, it, of course. <laughs> it wasn't the Queen, was it? No, of course it was McFly. <laughs> so that was scary. Bake Off never watched it. Figured it'd just be a bit of baking. I had to make a sculpture out of biscuit. But I don't bake, I don't cook, so that was interesting. I killed it though, eh? Did you see my Swiss roll? It was brilliant. I have um, I, I genuinely my mum's watched it. I haven't. But you I've watch watched it. races and she hasn't, so we're kind of equal on that one. So you would you would want my Swiss roll, it looked great. Um right. <laughs> if I'm, I'm think... shuffled again, then I'll pop over to Chester and then I've not made one since, so it probably wouldn't be very good anymore. But <laughs> um I don't know, I've been on loads of shows and, and literally just dropped myself right in it by never watching the show. Is so. that kind of, kind of weird, kind of wanting to go into a career with, you know, TV and having kind of not watched a lot of it? Or is it just kind of natural ability on the camera? I think it's just, yeah, I think I, I don't watch it because I just think, well, then I can get there and just act naturally rather than trying to act like people that I've seen previously on the show. Um, and I can get an actual appreciation of the show. Like, like Strictly was so much more commitment than I thought it would be. You know, it was it was literally like full on training, and I only did half a dance. I didn't even do a full one. So I tried to think what the guys that do a full dance have to go through. Yeah. Um. And and yeah, I don't know. I just don't have that much time to be honest. I would watch. I I watch Martelli now. I watch Bake Off now. So I'm a convert. <laughs> uh, we're talking about uh, just before finishing off um i wanted to talk about kind of moving forward and kind of you know um tokyo um next year how's that going the training for that going and you know what are your expectations from that um well i think we we kind of link very well back to the beginning of the podcast now don't we yeah we've gone um, level, haven't we <laughs> training's going well i think it's really really difficult to to know how well you're going because I would normally compare my training to, you know, when I'm out training on a track with the club, you know, how close am I to so-and-so? Are they leaving me behind? Am I leaving them behind? Are they normally ahead of me? I do a lot of my training on comparison, um, which I just haven't had this year and, and obviously don't have now because just sitting in my house in isolation. So, um, yeah, it's, I think it's going well. I'm feeling pretty strong. And this year has been really good because it's allowed me the chance to work on a lot of kind of the little technical things that normally you just brush under the rug and and just go, oh, I'll work on that at some point. But there's never time. You know, you're always competing or traveling or doing something. This year has forced me to focus on those things. And I think that's where some of my bigger gains have come from. Um, and we've just really sorted out our training setup at home. You know, we had the rollers. Um, the rollers are kind of like a treadmill for the race chair. Um, so we had them already. But we've we've made our garage into a gym and, and, you know, just generally made ourselves be able to train at home anytime a track or gym shuts now. We, we've got everything that we need. So it's going well. But going forward, who knows? I mean, who knows? I've got no idea if we're going to be able to uh, go on World Weather Trading. Um, I normally spend every January and February in Australia. So I... Can't really not see a bad location to be. Not bad. My coach is Australian, so it kind of helps. Um, but I can't see that happening next year, which will be a big difference. I've done that every year for the last another six six years, so um, it'll be a big change if we don't do that. And then obviously, we don't currently know what competitions we'll have available to us to qualify for the games next year. So it's it's literally just wait and see and, and try and motivate yourself as much as you can to, to just get on with it at the moment. And even after that, Tokyo, you know, Birmingham 2020, so you could talk about staying back up north. Is that quite, quite an exciting thing to... Um, Commonwealth Games, do you, are, you, do you, are you in that? or do you? Yes, so 2022 will be my first ever Commonwealth Games if I make the team, obviously. Um, it's the first time ever that they're going to have my event. Um, so that's really exciting. Um, it was literally announced like a couple of weeks ago. So, um, yeah, I nearly cried when I got the email saying that they were going to have my event because it's always been that illustrious, I don't know if that's the right word, but that one 
medal that I've never had the opportunity to try and win. Uh, and now that opportunity is there. So it's a it's a, a massive motivator, really. You know, I didn't know if Tokyo would be my last games. And now, you know, the gap between games is short and there's only three years. There's Commonwealth Games in the middle of it. And yeah, it looks like I'm stuck in the sport for another few years. <laughs> maybe retire after Paris or, you know. Potentially. Go back to Contrail then. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so just finishing off, I'll do this kind of every athlete who's going to be on. But if you've got a message for anyone, you know, who's got a disability like yours or is kind of wanting to participate in, in a sport like yours as well, what would your message be to them? Kind of, you know, a bit of inspiring message for them growing up. I think my message would just be um, take every opportunity you get. Even if you don't love it, you'll learn from it. So just say yes to everything and give it a go. Because, you know, I might not have ever tried was racing and I wouldn't be in the position I am now. So it's really important that you just try things um, because you might enjoy it. And don't let anyone ever decide for you what you can and can't do. You know, for my whole childhood, people told me what I couldn't do and, and I've proved them wrong now. So... Don't leave it that long. Get into it and find something that you enjoy and make it your life because it's the best way to do it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Some Essex Lad and the Paralympian. Please leave us a rating, comment and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. That means you'll get instant messages and when a new episode will drop directly into your lap. Also give us a follow on social media. On Twitter, it's at Essex Lad Para, and Instagram is at Essex Lad Paralympian. You can also like our Facebook page. Just type in some Essex Lad and a Paralympian. Farewell, and we'll see you soon.